As was mentioned previously at the outset of the announcements, we are thankful each, no doubt, to be able to assemble and to gather this evening, even as we are, and to appreciate the grandeur and opportunity for so many individuals around the world who might well appreciate the meeting in freedom and liberty have not had that privilege today, at least as you and I have. And tonight, yet a second opportunity to fellowship with God and with one another. And as was mentioned already, Certainly, as we continue our series of studies in the book of Job, as we close the lesson in our service this morning, I think Brother Lester made note to us that that would be the next installment in our series of lessons. And so it is that we come to the fourth series of lessons in that study of the Old Testament book of Job. It is to that book that I would invite you to turn with me. And at least by way of review, these are some of the things that we to this point have seen. First of all, we noted that the first two chapters set before us, the set of calamities surrounding the man named Job. As a part of that study, we learned that Job was real. He did really live, and there was a gentleman, a man, wealthy indeed, and he was the greatest of all the men of the East, Job 1, verse number 1. However, we quickly noted that a conversation developed between Satan on the one hand and God on the other, and that ultimately resulted in... Satan having the opportunity to touch not only the possessions of Job, but eventually his health as well. And we well remember that his possessions were taken from him. He also lost his children, and finally even the measure of his own health was taken. As a result of all of that, in chapter 3, Job lamented his state. He made note to the friends that had gathered about him and had first sat there in silence. He made note to them the gravity of the situation and the extreme character of it. The first of those friends to reply to him was Eliphaz in chapter number 4. Eliphaz, in fact, directly stated, Job, you have sinned. And that is the reason as to why God has poured forth His wrath and judgment upon you. And Job next replied and stated, he wanted the details and he wished to know the nature of the evidence how Eliphaz had reached that conclusion. We noted that following that, the next friend to speak was Bildad. He too had some rather direct things to say to Job, and he also made note, Job, you're a hypocrite. Job, you have not in fact lived as you have so often taught and impressed upon others. As a result of that, God has also brought the nature of His wrath and vengeance upon you, and this is merely the character of what your sin has brought about. Then we notice that Job yet replied... And this time he again agreed that God was a God of justice. He did not question that for even a moment. He did, however, request that he could converse or dialogue with God, and he desired a daysman, a mediator who could bring his case before the greatness of God. And with that, the curtain closed on our previous set of studies and brings us tonight to a third friend. To this point, we might notice the friends haven't been much comfort to Job. In fact, they have been far more accusing than anything else. As we come this evening to our next friend, his name is Zophar. And in chapter number 11, we have Zophar's address to Job. As we keep in mind the thought that at first these friends gathered and sat in silence somewhat aware of the enormity and magnitude of the situation, but apparently never appreciating its fullness. Notice with me, if you would, some of the things in chapter 11, inasmuch as Zophar brings these things before the mind of Job. 
In verse number 1, we are told that Zophar was a Naamathite. And immediately the question arises as to the nature of that city from which Zophar, in fact, had come. At this point, we might say that there was a city in the land of Canaan named Naamah, but it would seem that given where this place was, that Zophar was not from that place. Apparently, there was another ancient city by the name of Naamah. Where it was, the nature of its character, the Bible simply does not say. So at this point, I've simply commented that nothing is known for sure about the place from which Zophar had come. It is safe to say, though, in the verses that follow, he wasted no time in directly asserting his position to Job. I would invite you to read verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 with me. Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. Easy to see immediately the presentation of Zophar, isn't it? As I've tried to comment rather interestingly, Zophar was of the immediate position. Job, you've said a lot, but you haven't listened to what you've had to say. You yourself, verses 2 and 3, have been full of words. You yourself have claimed that your doctrine is pure and that your life is free from the character of sin as Bildad and as Eliphaz have asserted it. But Zophar is quick to say, verse number 3, your boastings... And the King James uses the word lies, but the better Hebrew word is boastings. You have bragged quite a bit. You have been filled with boastings, but, Job, your eyes have been blinded from the truth that's before you. You obviously have been guilty of the nature of violation of the nature of God's will, and you are being punished for that set of activities. Verse number 5, But oh, that God would speak and open His lips against thee. In the mind of Zophar, there was no question. If God could directly stay to you, say things to you, Job, He'd say exactly what the friends and I have asserted. There simply is no other explanation. And can you not see that, Job? Are your eyes so blinded you're not aware of the enormity of what's happened? Maybe what you've done, you yourself have been deluded into thinking it's okay. Maybe you yourself have been deceived. As the chapter unfolds, you'll notice there are more things. Zophar directly asserted that Job was incorrect, that he himself was in error. Beyond that, later in the chapter, we also notice that Zophar had these words of wisdom. I would invite you to read with me also verses 14 and following. If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. For then thou shalt lift up thy face without spot, yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery, and remember it as waters that pass away. And thine age shall be clearer than the noonday, thou shalt shine forth, thou shalt be the morning. Amazingly, we readily tell that Zophar also said, You, Job, need to turn to God. It is He to whom you need to turn, open your life and character and without any deception and allow Him to guide you and direct you so that your behavior and your conduct will be as it ought to be. 
in the end. Verse 20 says, But the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. Zophar said, You know, Job, the wicked will not prosper. And since you're not prospering, it's a self-evident fact that you're wicked. At that point, at the end of verse 20, that ends what Zophar had to say to Job. And yet one more time, we have found his friends were far more interested in accusing him based on what they think they knew rather than in attempting to understand his plight and reason with him about what Job knew to be the case all along. No wonder then as we come to chapter 12, it's time for Job to reply and it's time for him to respond to what Zophar had to say. Here are a few of the thoughts to be found in this chapter as well as the next two. For in chapters 12, 13, and 14, we have Job's response. Let us highlight some of those thoughts together beginning with verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? Job felt that his friends lifted themselves up in a degree of haughtiness and in a degree of arrogance to where they thought they had all the answers and they were bound and determined to bless Job with the greatness and thoroughness of their analysis, their wisdom, and their great answers. But you'll notice that Job was very quick to say, I am not inferior to you. You may think you know it all, and maybe you and I have known individuals who think that they know it all. Here, Job's friends gave that impression to him. And in verse number 3, Job says, What you have asserted is basically a self-evident fact. He says, What you have taught and what you have replied to me is not some great stretch of theological truth, but rather it's basic knowledge that most anyone should appreciate. Beyond that, Job quickly calls them to appreciate this fact. Namely, the fullness and grandeur of God's greatness. You might recall that one of the earlier speakers had called forth the nature of how great God was, and Job agreed to that fact. And here he remains again in the position. You'll notice he says, verse 7, But now ask the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Job quickly admitted that all things that are done are done under the jurisdiction of the greatness of the hand of God. Nothing takes place without His knowledge of it. Nothing takes place without His permissive capability of allowing it to occur. Job freely admitted that even if the animals of the field could talk, they would admit that. Even if the earth could speak, it would admit that. And so what Zophar had asserted, at least in part, wasn't again no great stretch of truth. It was simply that which ought to have been known all along. Beyond that, Job quickly asks them to easily appreciate this thought. Beginning in verse number 12. With the ancient is wisdom, and in the length of days understanding. With him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. Behold, he breaketh down, and it cannot be built again. He shutteth up a man, and there can be no opening. Behold, he withholdeth the waters, and they dry up. 
Also he sendeth them out, and they overturned the earth. With him is strength and wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. Job, you see, gave them a valiant sermon and a great lesson on the greatness of how God overrules in all these matters for strength and wisdom and understanding always abide and rest with God. He is not to be questioned. That was one of the great points the Apostle Paul made in Romans chapter 9, wasn't it? In fact, on that occasion, in verse 20 of that chapter, did he not say, Shall the thing say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You and I are not in position to have the nature of wisdom, the nature of mental understanding to question God on why He does certain things. At this point, we notice that Job gave his friends a grand lesson on that point on this occasion. As this chapter rolls forward, we notice specifically it closes with these words in verse 25. They grope in the dark without light and he maketh them to stagger like a drunken man. God, you see, is even able to touch into the lives and character of individuals. He does more than just overrule in the affairs of nations. He can bring things to bear in your life and in mine in such a way that he chastises, in such a way that he assists us to learn, develop, mature, and grow. That's a part of what leads us into chapter 13 to see what else Job had to say. In this chapter, this was the lesson text that Trail read for us just a moment ago. In verses 4 and 5 we read, But ye are forgers of lies, ye are all physicians of no value. Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom." Job, in essence, told them, You are doctors that have no value to come about from you. The things you prescribe, the things that you say are worthless. Talk about a person giving his friends a strong degree of chastisement. You would think a friend would be there to encourage, to have words of wisdom, to have thoughts that could assist and move onward. But Job's friends, he said, are like doctors with no value. What you have prescribed, what you have said, what you have asserted is absolutely meaningless and worthless. Furthermore, you'll notice in verses 8 through 10, in this chapter, Job also reminded them of something else that he was afraid they had forgotten. Will ye accept his person? Will ye contend for God? It is, one, it is good that he should search you out, or as one man mocketh another, do ye so mock him? He will surely reprove you if ye do secretly accept persons. Job reminded his friends of a very great lesson. If you have within your heart a partiality or respect of persons, God will reprove you. Apparently they had come to Job with all these supposed words of wisdom, and they felt easily confident and reassured to share them. But the problem is, they didn't know the facts, and they were mistaken, and they took the liberty to speak for God, when in fact they were not speaking God's thoughts. Job here reminded them in verse 15 of this chapter, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job's thoughts had not veered far from the nature of God at this point. He wished to converse with God, and he had a desire to understand the plight of why he hadn't been forgiven of the things in his life, and these things and calamities removed. But to this point, he hadn't spoken so foolishly against God. 
amazing that we notice as this chapter ends, Job again has this great request. Verse 24, Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and holdest me for thine enemy? Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro, and wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? For thou writest bitter things against me, and makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. Thou puttest my feet also in the stocks, and lookest narrowly into all my paths. Thou settest a print upon the heels of my feet. And he, as a rotten thing, consumeth as a garment that is moth-eaten. Job felt his plight to be a great one, and oh, how he wished to be relieved of it. But at this point, he could see no end in sight. He could not appreciate the means whereby it would be removed from him. And so in verse chapter 14, it begins with these solemn statements. In this chapter, we will appreciate that Job's thoughts have taken a turn in the following direction. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth as a flower and is cut down. He fleeth, fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. And dost thou not open, or I'm sorry, dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one, and bringest me into judgment with thee? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest, till he shall accomplish his hireling his day. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it shall sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof <coughs> will not cease. Job has reached the point, as you can see from verses like those, of requesting that things might be brought to an end, at least for the moment. That God would cover him and hide him at least for a while, and then after all this calamity is past, he can come forth again and enjoy at least a bit of what he had formerly known. It would seem that Job has ventured into a matter of dire consideration by this point. The pain, the anguish, the difficulty that surrounded his plight has led him to think thoughts like this now. As this chapter reaches its middle point, verse 14, If a man die, shall he live again? The days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. For now thou numberest my steps. Dost thou not watch over my sin? Job didn't claim to be perfect in the sense of sinlessness. He even made note that he was one that had sinned. What he didn't understand was why it could not be forgiven. And at this point, why his case could not be brought before God. As we learned last Sunday evening, the nature of that mediator allows for you and me what Job did not have. As that chapter comes to its conclusion in verses 21 and 22, His sons come to honor, and he knoweth it not. And they are brought low, but he perceiveth it not of them. But his flesh upon him shall have pain, and his soul within him shall mourn. Job seemed to have resigned himself by this point to the reality of his state, and only again wondering how long it would persist. It is those thoughts that close what Job had to say, for the next chapter brings us back to yet another speaker. For now, as we reflect on some of what we have seen from the nature of our study so far, what might be some lessons, things that might assist you and me 
as we think about living for the Lord in this day and time, so many centuries later than Job lived upon this earth, the title that I had given to the lesson was this, Observations About People. What might you and I say at least so far through these first 14 chapters as it relates to Job's friends? We have studied three of them now. There was first Eliphaz who spoke, and then Bildad spoke, and then Zophar spoke. And as we have looked at what each one of them have said, we noticed in our reading tonight that Job had some impressions of them and some things that they had in fact set forth as characteristic of themselves. First of all, didn't Job himself state in chapter 12 verse 3 and in chapter 13 verse 2 that these friends set about with a definitive air of superiority. Job even said twice, I am in no way inferior to you. They set forth this air of pompous circumstance, an air of clear and, shall we say, directed nature that went along with their, the nature of just exactly how great they thought that they were in their own eyes. That is to say, their own superiority. I would ask that we each at least give a passing thought to the nature of these friends. Here they had come. It was commendable that they came in an effort to comfort Job. But after sitting there for seven days and observing, and observing in silence, they now have spoken, and what they have spoken has been so far removed from what you might have thought a friend would be. An air of superiority. Isn't it true that there are still those in the world who seem to conduct themselves along that line, who think, I'm better than you. I've got the answers. And though they may not say it, you almost need to bow before them in order to get their graces and feel their blessing. At least that's the impression that they give. Perhaps you have heard someone describe another person as if they are God's blessing to the human family. Now, quite frankly, we all understand that we have the character of talent embedded within us because God has blessed us with that. And there is no question we each should strive to use those abilities and those talents in a way that would bring glory and honor to God. We are, in fact, commanded of such in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. We are told there that each of us may strive to use those gifts that we have in a way that would bring forth and be the ministering blessing to those who are about us. As you can see, Job clearly felt here that these friends painted themselves up as the ones with the answer. They lifted themselves up in arrogance as superior to Job. We haven't sinned like you have, Job. Look at what you're suffering. And yet all the while, they themselves had failed at all to know the background of this whole story they didn't know that Satan and God had had that conversation. They didn't know the reason as to why Job was suffering. They didn't appreciate at all the plea that Job had uttered. They simply thought that they had the wisdom and the knowledge and that Job just ought to be quiet and listen to what they had to say. As I noted earlier, sometimes you and I are faced with dwelling with those on earth like that. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a member of the workplace at some location. Maybe it's another individual who by his own disposition or her own disposition 
feels as if he or she is superior and that all others really, in fairness, ought to come and get their approval and get their wisdom and get their say-so for almost anything that's done. But as Christians, you and I are well in a position to know that in Romans 12 verse 3, the inspired apostle said that no man ought to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but rather in humility to humble himself in appreciation that it is by the grace of God that he is what he is. And he ought to strive to use those positions and those characteristics in the way that God has said. Sometimes isn't it true that dealing with a person with an ego like this can be a challenge? You have to handle that ego with such care. If you say the wrong thing, they may be upset with you because you did, in fact, call into question what they thought they were in themselves. You mean you have the nerve, the audacity to question and to go around me to get approval from someone else? Or to, in fact, seek advice from some other person besides me? There are even congregations, perhaps, that we each have known at one time or another where there was some person, maybe even not an elder, who felt that he and sometimes even she was the one who everyone else should come to because all matters ought to be directed through that person. At least that's what he or she felt. We are reminded on so many occasions, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That text of Philippians 2.5 follows in verses 6 and following with these words. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That reading is through verse 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Here we noted in passing, didn't we? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus was the Lord of glory. And yet He humbled Himself, divesting Himself of all the glory of heaven to live as a man. Hebrews 2.14 reminds us that He Himself also likewise took part of the same that He through death might in fact destroy Him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus freely, voluntarily gave up all of that. John 10 verse 17, that He could live like you and me, set before us the perfect example if he in humility could be like that, what a tragedy it is that you and I would lift ourselves up haughtily, arrogantly, inappropriately, with pride. Paul reminded those in Corinth, didn't he? Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That person who has lifted himself up, it's almost a surety that in time something will be discovered, something will be found out, and that empire the person strove to build will crumble into the dust in a matter of months. You see, God has a way of bringing forth judgment upon those who inappropriately with pride lift themselves up to where they do not belong. We do read, do we not, in Luke 14, 11, that it is God who will abase those who in fact dwell in such a way that is prideful or haughty, but He will exalt those who humble themselves. 
Not only do we learn that lesson from these friends of Job, but what else do we learn? Not only did they have this air of superiority, but that really leads us directly to this. Job directly said to Zophar in chapter 13, verse 4, Ye are forgers of lies. And as you may have noted in the reading earlier this evening, there's another way in which that may well be presented. The Hebrew word, in fact, has behind it the thought that goes along with deception. The thought that goes behind it of deceiving. These friends, you see, came before Job and they painted the picture that they had the proper answers. But all the while, Job said, you are forgers of lies. It could well be that that's Job's way of very kindly saying that they too had sins in their life. They too had matters of which they were guilty, but they chose to not think about their own sins, but think about somebody else's. And if that be true, they were the ones that were the hypocrites, not Job. If that be true, they were the ones that were deceivers, not Job. Even though both Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad had accused Job directly of being a hypocrite, doing one thing and saying another, it could well be that this is one of Job's ways of reminding them they were the ones in that position, not him. Isn't it strange when there are those who in this life want to judge somebody else because they have what the first wish they had? Of course, that's part and parcel with envy, isn't it? This person is able to do what that one, even though he or she would like to, they simply cannot do it. They have not the talent. They have not the capability. And so they're envious of one who can and does have that ability, and they thus strive to tear it down, damage it, cause it to be unfruitful, perhaps even hold a grudge against them. You are forgers of lies, Job told them. What a sorry reflection upon the friends, at least in a statement like that one. The sorriness of it perhaps is highlighted in words like this. Doesn't it remind us that Jesus had much to say as well as other New Testament writers about that very thought? In Matthew 7, again in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus on that occasion made mention of judging, didn't He? He said, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. It was common in the first century, and isn't it still common today, for an individual to judge another without knowing the facts of the case, without knowing the things that in propriety would lead to a proper statement of conclusion. God, of course, looks on the heart of men, Acts 1.24. He did so in the days of David in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 16. Surely there were those in that day who, upon choosing the next king of Israel, Saul, because of his disobedience, had been rejected. Samuel and others surely thought that it was going to be Jesse's oldest boy. He was tall. He was a strapping young man. He was handsome. Surely he's the one God has chosen. But yet, when Eliab and all the others passed before Samuel, none of them were the chosen one. And it was Samuel who had to ask, Are these all the boys, Jesse? Jesse said, no, the youngest is still out in the field. Bring him, Samuel said, bring him. And when he came, God through Samuel said, he's the next one. It was in verse 7 of that chapter when it was stated, God looketh not on the appearance, but on the heart. 
Here these friends had fallen into the fatal mistake of making an inappropriate judgment of Job. Forgers of lies they were, guilty of deception, inappropriate at that. As you and I give thought to that, doesn't it remind us how that that mistake can also make itself manifest today? When you and I so quickly jump to a conclusion with regard to someone else without knowing the facts of the case. Now let's be quick to say that there is a proper way to judge. For Jesus said in John 7, 24, judge righteous judgment. But when we're drawing conclusions based on appearance and based on simply matters without discovering and knowing that which lies behind it, especially when it relates to spiritual truth, then you and I are thus making a very sore and terrible judgment. In light of a statement like that one, wasn't it true again, Job said, in verse number 4, Ye are all physicians of no value. Have you and I at times been disappointed when we visit a doctor? And it's easy to tell that his mind is somewhere else. Maybe he has another critical patient. Maybe he's wanting to leave to go to lunch. Maybe the end of the day is here and he just wants to go home and it's clear he doesn't really have any interest in spending time to figure out what the matter is. He quickly writes a prescription, sends us on our way. At times like that, maybe you and I feel that a doctor, at least when he behaves like that, may not be of much value. We want that doctor to take the time to learn our case, diagnose our problems, try to find out what is causing the symptom, and to address it. These friends had not done that. They spoke where they did not have the facts. As such, physicians of no value. Can't we be thankful that we have a great physician who always says what is of great value? In John 12, 49, it is He, the Christ, who speaks the words of God and always delivers to us God's truth on every subject and on every consideration. For all those reasons, it does bring us to one last lesson, one more thing we can learn from the friends, the error of partiality. We noted in chapter 13, Verses 8, 9, and 10. That statement that Job asserted the friends, if they behaved in a way that was partial, if they, in fact, gave a description of judgment and did so with partiality, that they would be reproved by God. And that helps us see, too, doesn't it? That partiality has no place amongst the service of our Heavenly Father. James addressed that in James chapter 2, didn't he? There it was in the confines of rich versus poor. If a rich man come in and you treat him differently than you would a poor man, you are partial and you are not the servants of God, James wrote. We learn powerfully from passages like that one and others that that fellowship we enjoy in Christ isn't based on worldly education. It isn't based on money. It isn't based on prestige or how many things we may be able to put after our name. We enjoy brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. And that air of partiality highlights the fact that here these friends appeared to Job to act in a way that was partial. Maybe they were somewhat jealous of him. Maybe they were somewhat envious of him because he was so wealthy. Whatever the reason may have been. We remember in 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul wrote, Timothy, do nothing in partiality. It must be that way in the church today, mustn't it? 
one of the easiest ways to lead to clicks, can lead to division, can lead to problems in a congregation is for there to be the appearance of partiality. When some people are treated differently than others, when some are treated somewhat better or worse than others, simply because of who they are or what they have or what they may be able to do. But in the church, again, Paul wrote, do nothing, Timothy, by partiality. Timothy, of course, labored in the church at Ephesus, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We often notice that as the elders oversaw that congregation, that Timothy was to preach powerfully and strongly the fact that let nothing be brought about by the matter of that partiality. With that, we learn perhaps that lesson, that as we close this lesson tonight, may we forget, not forget that on the day of judgment, there shall be no partiality in that regard. We each will in fact be judged based on the deeds done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. And we shall, be, we shall receive according to the works that we have done. That statement of Revelation twenty-two twelve allows us to conclude this lesson and summarize it perhaps with these words of Zophar as well as what we have seen. Zophar was so quick to accuse Job just like the other friends had done, but he even ratchets up the intensity of it slightly. It would seem that the friends are becoming a bit frustrated by Job's refusal to admit whatever it is that he's done, at least in their mind. And so Zophar accuses him directly yet again. In reply, Job has stated the friends have been physicians of no value, that they themselves have been the forgers of lies and deceptions. Job was quick to make note of the calamity that he was suffering. Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. As we look into some of the succeeding lessons, we shall be able to revisit some of what Job said in chapter 14. And, though, and so I have allowed those passages to be used at a later time in our series. I would ask us to notice that as the next lesson takes up next Sunday evening, another speaker comes before us. Eliphaz now speaks again. I wonder if he has changed his message or if he will state some things that sound similar to what he stated the first time. Let's be prepared to study and see what Eliphaz says next time, and also look perhaps at yet again Job's reply. Tonight, as we conclude this lesson, I hope that we each have been able to learn from Job and the friends the error that goes with partiality, the nature of lifting ourselves up with arrogance and pride and how that that's inappropriate, and also how much wrong can come about therefrom. As you and I learn those lessons, how blessed we shall be to serve God in humility and strive to be those who are not forgers of lies but forgers of truth as we strive to live godly and teach others and assist them that they might do the same. Tonight, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, if you do not serve faithfully in that membership, please think urgently about your situation. Jesus died that you might be saved, but He saves only the body, Ephesians 5.23. He saves only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. If your name isn't in that book, having been put there by faithful baptism to the commandment that God has given, let that be accomplished tonight. We'd be more than honored to assist you. 
prerequisites to that are you must believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Master and be, be baptized, Acts 2.38. If we could help you in doing that, why not tonight? If you have become a Christian, have been a member of that blood-bought institution which is the body of Christ, Acts 20.28, 20, but you haven't been faithful to that calling, you've wandered away from the fold of faithfulness and truth, why not come back to that fold of safety tonight? We will remember that. The Lord would desire that the one return, even though there be 99 faithful waiting in the fold. If you're that one who strayed away, come back to Him tonight. We can pray with you. We can pray for you. And under the banner of Acts 8, verses 20 and following, we'd be happy to do that very thing. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, why not let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and sing the chosen hymn.